WilderUtopia.com celebrates world culture and literary expression and our inspiration sources from folklore, myth, and storytelling, as well as the rituals and traditions of the many peoples of the planet. My name is Jack Ide, and let's go on a wild ride into the wilderness of literary imagination. It's a venerable carnival of the animals out there. If you put your ear to the ground, you can hear them coming. This is Jack Hyde, and today I will be interviewing Max Talley, curator of Delirium Corridor, a dark anthology. That's 15 tales of psychological suspense, altered states, nor crime, and the surreal from Borda Books, Santa Barbara Literary Journal. This is a piece from the eponymous first story by Max Talley called Delirium Corridor. Jeremy fished the keys from his pocket. He heard an agonized shriek, then silence. His body felt numb, but summoning unusual strength, he slid his cumbersome desk away and unlocked the three locks. A dank, moldy stench seeped out when he pulled the door open. The hallway was so dark, Jeremy couldn't even see to the connecting door. After finding a box of safety matches among the junk on his shelves, he lit one and proceeded through the corridor, empty, where had Christina gone? In the dim, yellowy light cast by the match, Jeremy watched the hallway telescope outward. The entry door slammed shut, a gust of air blowing out the flame. Jeremy became disoriented. He pressed a hand against one wall, but it felt soft and wet like the inside of a throat. Jeremy reco recoiled. Both sides of the corridor illuminated. Images formed like medieval tapestries on castle walls, liquid paintings that moved in slow motion, living, breathing. On the right side, he watched a group of circus tents burn atop a hillside while people fled through billowing smoke. To his left, Jeremy saw a weary man buried in the dirt up to chest level. His arms flailed about as he struggled to fend off wild dogs. Jeremy continued forward in the hallway, entranced by the images, a traveling caravan of ragtag vehicles followed by a woman cackling in a solitary confinement cell, and beyond he saw a deserted city sunken into a lush European valley. The city inhaled, exhaled, and sighed. Max Talley was born in New York and received a BA in literature from a liberal arts college. He, he has written weekly columns and won awards for his fiction. His first story, Poisoned, appeared in Iconoclast magazine in 2007 and has since published in numerous literary magazines and anthologies. Talley's dystopian near future thriller, yes, Yesterday We Forget Tomorrow, was published by Damnation Caliber and Press in June of 2014. Tally's curated dark anthology, Delirium Corridor, is published by Board of Books. It includes two of his stories, his cover and interior artwork, and stories of 12 excellent writers, including yours truly. Mm -hmm. um, look for his essay collection, Snowblind in the Void, in early 2021, from Finishing Line Press. 
He lives in transit between the high desert of New Mexico and the south coast of California. Tally teaches a writing workshop each June at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and during fall in the Santa Fe workshops. Uh, welcome, Mac. Thank you, Jack, for having me. Yeah, so I've known you since 2007 at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference, and you were looking around like the rest of us to find a writing community and connect, connect with the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. also grew up in a publishing family. What made you jump into the world-building realm of writing fiction? Um, well, I think I've always been a reader. I've always been surrounded by books. Um, I was a songwriter, so I've always wanted to tell stories. I, I like the idea of escapism and stories. So it's something I've wanted to do, but various things like playing in bands and painting and trying to make a living got in the way. Um, you know, I did write here and there, wrote short stories, and they were okay, but nothing great. I didn't realize how much time was involved to be a decent writer. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, so you mentioned you navigate the world of rock and roll performance and primitive surrealistic art, uh, and you continue to perform publicly and, and create a lot of art, so many of which not, were... Not so much this year, but in general. Yeah, well, I get that. So how, how do you reconcile the, the three? Do they work together? Or they Sometimes they work together. It's not like, you know, you do them all at the same time. Um, I, there's probably some people who can do that. I'm not one of them. But one sort of leads to the other. You get a temporary writing block, and then maybe you do a painting. And then you're painting something, and I, I mean most of my paintings are sort of a scene like from a story. So they might jog my mind and I might think, Oh, that would be kind of cool if I work this into a story. So then on the other hand, if I'm writing well and I get a painting block, I'll think of one of my stories and say, you know, this story could use a painting. And that actually happened in the delirium corridor collection. I thought I need a painting for the story delirium corridor. So I did the back cover over the summer specifically for that. The front cover was for the other story, The Man with the Acid Handshake. So sometimes one thing leads to the other. Uh, a lot of the time they're separate pursuits, but it's sort of cool when they come together and you think, oh, you get a story idea from a painting or a story leads you to have a painting, you know, to complete it. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, as as we mentioned, your anthology that you sort of put forward here, Delir Delirium Corridor, was published this month by Board of Books. It includes 15 tales of psychological suspense, altered states, more crime, and the surreal. Mm -hmm. So tell us what inspired this multifarious trip into the beyond. Um, you know, as a kid, um, and I'm sure you remember watching TV shows reruns of Twilight Zone, Outer Limits. More recently, there's been a good series called Black Mirror and their anthology series where strange things happen to people. And it's not like purely science fiction. It's not purely horror. It's all, any, any kind of thing can happen to someone. It could be a crime. It could be a near future dystopian thing. But it's single episodes and they all sort of have a a theme that ties them together. 
And delirium corridor, sort of like Twilight Zone, is a transitional space. It's not a place you go looking for. It's a place you end up. It's kind of by mistake. You know, let's say you went on a hike one day and you decide, I'm going to take this other little spur trail. And then suddenly you realize, oh, I'm on Rattlesnake Trail, literally. It's, there's the possibility in the moment when we do something, when we improvise, that it'll lead to something beautiful. But there's also the possibility that it, it will lead us to some space we don't know, a strange town filled with inbred circus uh, carnival people. Not that all circus people are inbred, but in Delirium Corridor, they would be. So for instance, you, Jack Eider, are heading home and you're eager to see your lady friend or male friends or whoever, and you go running, you fall on your, you fall forward on your face. You wake up in a hospital thinking, oh God, I must've conked out. And then you hear a doctor and a, and someone's revving up a bone saw and they're like, we got to do some exploratory surgery. That's when you know you're in delirium corridor. You went into a different space and a completely um, different outcome uh, presented itself to you. So in history, I think you would probably agree that, you know, there's limbo, purgatory, there's states when we're in between. And do we come back out of it to where we were or do we go further into the void? And I think that's the question in a lot of these stories. Some of them end badly, uh, surprisingly, Surprisingly enough, Stephen Vessel's story had a very happy ending. But uh, so you don't know when it's an unexpected place you find yourself in and you hope that you can recover and get back to where you were, but that's not guaranteed. And I think in your story too, it's not guaranteed that the character is going to survive where he goes to. And maybe he did survive, but another person might go there and, and perish. Yeah, well, I it, I think you have taken the concept of delirium corridor a, a little more literally in, in the eponymous story that kicks off this anthology. Yeah, I agree. The story was literal, and then I wanted to be a little bit more vague so that it could embrace a whole series of different approaches from different authors like yourself. Yeah, well, so... Your story left me with the notion that this hall of mania is a rich and vibrant place where lots of surprises come, but also dangerous and deadly. Occasionally it's laugh out loud humorous, a land of karma coming at you like a tidal wave. From your story, I was reminded of the visionary nature. I'm not sure if you read Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse. Yeah, I love Herman Hesse. I read as a teenager, I read all his books. Yeah. So the Magic Lantern Theater is something that it's sort of a point when he enters this abstract section from the treatise of the Steppenwolf where he, he is. Uh, and and what it says over the entry is not for, for everybody. For madmen only. What's that? I, I thought it said for madmen only. Could be, I, you know, I don't have, it. thank you. It's been a while since I read it. But the point is, there's these visions that come through it that are really apocalyptic there, but some of them are inspiring. So does Delirium Corridor for you foretell the future as sort of a dystopia 
something we're, we're really not going to be thrilled about? Or is there something that will bring positive change and overcoming for all of us? Um, I wasn't looking at it as a dystopian thing, though I'm not sure it was hopeful either. What I did see it as is in my story and not in other people's story, Delirium Corridor is a sort of zone that separates. I mean, the, one of the characters says it's a passageway between matter and antimatter, between logic and utter chaos, a DMZ. Whatever beings live beyond the other door are not sculpted of flesh and bones. They appear as toxic clouds, poisonous viruses, and nuclear explosions. So it's, it's kind of a separation zone to keep two worlds apart from each other. And both worlds probably have value on their own, but could destroy each other if they were allowed to completely commingle. And my idea is occasionally things do come over from the other side. We see visions, phantoms, people see faces of Christ in a, in a tree. Little things appear that don't make any logical sense. And it's almost as if they came over from this other side. So we can survive with little bits of it and we can have our superstitions and myths but we cannot allow them to completely come together. And Delirium Corridor is not only an interstitial zone, but it's also um, a protective zone, keeping one away from the other. Well, it's interesting because both your story, Delirium Corridor, and mine, City of Illumination, have these visits moving through the border between here and there into these uh, this other world sensibility. And I, I don't think when I wrote it, I imagined like this is the delirium corridor. It's just what I wanted to write about journey to the underworld of sorts. But it really is sort of where people face is this death, is this life, is this rebirth? Because I, I think it's really, for me, the, the question between the living and the dead and what what happens? I mean, we people, humans have come up with great stories about what it means when when we leave this earth. And, and I was just struck by Jeremy, Jeremy Rebus, your main character, who's charged with guarding the door, but kind of slowly was failing at that job. And so yeah, he chased after a woman. I mean, you know, he made <laughs> he made a big mistake. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, it was. Quite, quite a trip. Um, yeah, and and you're, one reason your story was accepted was because, not because it felt like a delirium corridor, but it dealt with some of those issues. Yeah. And the party that you show in your story, both had, it, it has uh, qualities that are tempting and also kind of repulsive at the same time. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's things that are alluring and seductive about that space that you go into, but at the same time, you maybe you lose control or you're now um, not a slave, but you're part of that world and you're not guaranteed exit. Yeah. So you also published the story man with an acid handshake in, in the anthology um, yeah. as mentioned, which also blends a, a level of surrealistic vision with satire, or maybe just a sense of irony about the futility of it all or where does this and, you know, other stories, because I've read uh, 
you know, quite a number. You've published a whole long list of very wide variety of stories. I, I, I don't think you're just, and I don't, I don't know actually if there's a genre that I could put in this, whether it's, you know, but you, you have a wide range of, that you have some stories that are political yeah. based or, or thrillers the, of action that's happening. There's where a reason is, for that. Where does this broad palette of world building come from in your experience? Two, there's two reasons. One is a practical reason. I used to just write stories like Delirium Corridor and The Man with the Acid Handshake. And I was lucky to get published once a year, maybe once every few years. So I was the guy who wrote weird, oddball fiction, kind of influenced by Kafka and Gogol, where bizarre things happen to people, out of outlandish things happen to people, and then they go on with their life, despite the fact that something fantastical happened. So I did that, and then I, I thought, why am I writing this one? I, there's so many books that I've read. I have so many influences like crime fiction, horror, literary fiction. There's so many things that I've read that I enjoyed. Why am I just sticking to this one style? So it, it kind of freed me up. And I think probably um, workshop Santa Barbara reference. No, you can only write music-based fiction. And when I heard that, I realized, no, I, I'll write whatever the hell I want. So sometimes you have to be sort of told the wrong thing or, or commanded by someone, and then you react against it. You get enough rejection letters, and then it makes you just try to write better and better and try different styles to try to break through. So it was, it's kind of was a method of breaking through to where I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it shows a, a really incredible range. I mean, I've seen some science fiction, quite a bit of science fiction that you've put together. And you, you mentioned crime fiction, stuff that is maybe more straightforward or more accepted in, in book selling circles. But do you think that it, it also would have, because you have this range uh, in the publishing industry, maybe they're a little concerned where to classify you. And some, some writers actually come up with new names for their different genres. That they yeah. I, <laughs> I changed a letter or two in my name and that's about it. My feeling was I'd gotten to an age where I wasn't going to be an overnight success or even a long time success um, in making tons of money. So I just preferred to try to be a, a as, as good a writer as I could and not worry so much about, oh, they can't classify me. I love genre fiction, but I want it to be well-written. So I want it to be literary. And I love literary fiction where things happen, where there's a plot. So yeah. I try to I try whenever I'm doing genre stuff to make it uh, intelligent. And then I feel like there's the link in all the stuff is that I try to put a little bit of humor in everything so that people will at least recognize my voice a little bit. Even yeah. if it's a genre they don't recognize. So the progressive amnesia of your character, Jeremy Rebus from Delirium Corridor, brings to mind the erased identity crisis suffered by the main character of your novel, Yesterday We Forget Tomorrow. Um, does Phil Kane, that, that character of the latter novel, right. overlap on the continuum of delirium? I don't think so, but yeah, clearly my ideas are limited. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, 
you know, those are things that, that go through me all the time. What is our identity? Are we who we are all of our life? Every day we wake up and, and we say like, oh, I'm Jack Ite. I'm a writer or I'm an activist or I say I'm a guitar teacher. I mean, they're, they're all just things we invent. They're the fictions of our life. But then we live them so they become kind of our reality. Um, so I'm fascinated by people who have uh, amnesia or forget who they were or think that their identity is not who it is because I think in some ways that's a poss possibility for all of us that we go through life as one thing and then you see people when they're 40 or 50, maybe it's a, um, a wife who gets divorced and suddenly she's painting and she's discovered this whole other thing. So the idea that we have different identities in us I find intriguing. And also in the, the novel you're talking about, the idea that the government implants identities into you, I find that fascinating just from the conspiracy theory, you know, everyone's against you. But I guess what I learned is that no matter what you think could be happening in the future, the future will actually be weirder. There's a, I wrote yesterday, we forget tomorrow in around 2012, uh, got accepted in 2013, and I had Governor Trump in there. And the editor said, are you sure you want to have Governor Trump? They said, that's a funny line, but it's so far-fetched. <laughs> and I said, yeah, it's just for humor. I said, you're right, it's far-fetched, but let's leave it in, because I think New Yorkers at least laugh at it. So now nobody's laughing. <laughs> We're all crying, but... Uh, the point, point is, it's really hard, as I think, as a science fiction or dystopian writer to imagine a world where it's such a state now where the absurdity is real. Yeah, no doubt. So that's probably why that's the last pure dystopian fiction that I've written. I, I think I gave that a rest for a little while. Well, yeah, and I guess the question I had, because the political intrigue and Mm -hmm. from the yesterday novel and some of your other work, uh, earlier work at eco terrorists and, and different anti-corporate crusaders. And so there's, there's a tone of subversive politics. It's not, you're, you're not at all straight away trying to tell people anything. It's not, you know, it's not a soapbox type thing. How do you I've, see? I've been told. I've been told by a, a, a few other writers that it is a soapbox at times. But well, yeah, I, I'm I'm told that probably more than you, and and sometimes it's true because what we do is we, you know, there's a lot we're we're representing reality out there and things that are happening and and making it fiction. But um, and there's a lot of people. There's a lot of politics as part of the mix. The key is giving people a sense of what's going on, you know, the humanity behind what people think. So do you, I mean, do you have a political agenda in your writing? It's not my, it's not my first agenda. I think good storytelling is the most important thing, but yeah, I'm happy to rail against corporations, rail against government. I think anyone who's pompous and over serious and has no sense of humor should be made fun of. And lately that's been all over the spectrum, whether it's extreme right or the extreme progressive left, but it's not, 
it's not out of hatred. It's more just like, is this really what it's more uh, satire and saying, is this what you want to want to do? Is this the way you want it to be? I, I'm questioning those things. I'm hoping, hopefully through humor, but on balance, I am more against, I'm more for the individual and yes, aversion and the keeping the planet alive and uh, being against corporate welfare and the, you know, you know, the vast uh, difference between CEOs, salaries and the average worker, all those things need to be commented on, but it's, I think it's hard to do them, like you're saying, without getting on a soapbox. So I try to do it more in the dialogue, having the pompous characters be very pompous rather than in the narrative. I mean, I've, I've certainly done it in the narrative in the past, but I think as I go along, I'm trying to have it less me hammering it into people's heads and just presenting the characters. And if I do it right, people will say, oh, that character is vile and idiotic by the way they speak, the expressions they use, and their manner, rather than the narrative is telling me these are evil corporate bad guys. And and like I said, it's not easy, and it's something I'm still working on. Because really, the story is, I think, the most important thing, that people get an enjoyable story, and those other things are good to have in there, but I don't think they should be the dominant thing Otherwise, why not just write political speeches? Right. Do you have favorite writers or conversely, are there writers you hate? <laughs> you want a list of the writers I hate? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's such a, it's a very typical question. You know, the, the uh, writers that I like will never <laughs> hear that I liked them, but the writers I hate will definitely somehow hear about it. That's just the way <laughs> of the world. So as far as what I've been reading lately, I really like um, Don DeLillo. Underworld by him is just a, a stunning book. He breaks every rule. No teacher or workshop leader would ever tell you to write like him. And he does it with fierceness and fearlessness. So I, I appreciate that. You, you know I'm a fan of Dennis Johnson, oh, yeah. who, who died a couple of years ago, and it's a huge loss. Another guy who breaks the rules, he started as a poet. So he writes fiction and plots. I don't know if plots are that important to him. So sometimes if you're looking for a good plot, his stories um, are unsatisfying, but they always have incredible imagery. Just writing that it's jaw-dropping. I, I find myself cursing when I read some of his stuff. Like, how did that motherfucker write that? So he's one. I've recently I've been reading Zadie Smith. Not so much a novel, but she has a, a recent short story collection that's really good. And then Amy Bender, have you heard of her? Sure. Um, she writes fantastical short stories. And I think she's sort of the reigning queen of whatever that is. She's excellent at it. In the 90s, my two guys were T.C. Boyle and Paul Auster. They're kind of complete opposites. Boyle never found a metaphor <laughs> that he didn't like, metaphor or simile. He was kind of the overabundant guy who was very much the antithesis of the minimalism that I that I did not care for. 
So I went toward him because he reminded me of the modernists or postmodernists like Barth and Pinchon that I had originally liked. So I'm still a fan of his short stories. I can't, can't say I've read uh, any of his novels in, in recent years. And Paul Auster had a very simple, much more simple style, totally clear, but you could tell he worked on it to make it clear. It wasn't just written simply. It was clear and surreal. And I think he was a huge influence on me in the sense that he would have a detective novel, but it would be like detective novel as if Samuel Beckett wrote it. Anyway, so those would be some influences. Yeah, that's great. So you've taken to teaching a bit at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference and, and in Santa Fe. And what would you say to people who want to tell these types of stories? I mean, it's pretty daunting. Uh, both you and I can attest it's it's a difficult market out there and there's often not enough support of writers who are taking risks. What would be your advice to those who just can't help themselves like yourself? Well, I would say have some kind of goal. I mean, it really helped me to write a, a short story or an essay or something every month. So if I wasn't working on a novel, I would least write a story a month so that way at the end of the year i would even if a few of the stories were just horrible i would still have at least like eight good stories and so over the years i've built up enough and then having all those out at 10 or 15 or 20 different places submitted to then your chances are much better of getting published and you I think, you know, other workshop leaders have said the same thing. You have to kind of decide what you're in it for. If you're writing weird, challenging stuff, you you must want to do it. It must be an obsession because you're certainly not going to make money unless you, I don't know, write a, a screenplay. So you want to do it as well as you can. And it's helped me to write in different genres just because that gets me published more. And maybe that gets people to see take a look at some of the weirder stuff that they might not have if I just did that. So I guess it's a slight commercial concession, but even when I'm writing literary fiction, I still want it to be odd and I want it to say something and there to be social satire. So it's not, I don't feel like I'm completely doing some commercial crap, you know, writing a romance thing to convince people of other, I, I think it's just uh, casting a wider net, if that makes sense. Yeah. So we all need stories. We need from very inspired by ancient mythology and mm -hmm. stories that originally were told through around the campfire and, and of fantastical beings that are very connected into the reality of everyday things like indigenous um, storytelling where you really can understand the world around you in a much clearer thing by through these stories, which are fantastical and they're very much fiction. They're often tell, tall tales. You know, they, they paint the world in a, a larger than life vision. Is there a future for that, particularly when we have different forms of storytelling that are that, that take away some of that, some of the hard work that, that we 
do when we read of, of visualizing in your own mind. Um, so given, given that we have these really compelling visual mediums that control the discussion, do you think there's a future there for, for the written word? I do think there is. Being into music, it's very sad for me that CDs and records, you know, besides hipsters and collectors have, have basically gone away. However, I don't think books have. There was a feeling that books were going to die, but bookstores have stayed strong. There is a core audience that needs and wants storytelling. And I think that's a, a, a great sign. I also think that the world of the last, say, 10 years of people just staring at their phones and finding updates, that that is going to fade. It may become something worse or something better, but it, it's a, it is a trend in itself. So at a certain point, people will be bored of staring at selfies and um, TikTok dance routines, and they'll want to read something. And um, I, I don't mean the vast population, but a good amount of people. So I, I think we're just in a weird phase now. There's intelligent phases, and then there's phases where people turn away from books and science and facts and reason and you know it plays into what you're talking about fantastical stories now we instead of turning to myths and religions we're obsessed with cults not we're but portions of society uh, are convinced whether it's QAnon or Scientology or the Trump cult there's people who'd rather believe in something like that than anything factual or even mythology based well it is it is a form of fiction and it's a form of mythology but it's not a, a very well crafted mythology <laughs> definitely not <laughs> so it, it's like yeah, mythology for dummies creating significant divisions out there that, that yeah but, but it's an interesting time because we're you know i'll, I'll write stories about superstitious people in Russia in the 1920s and and in America we almost have that now we have superstitious people I look at art and listen and and read various books and then I think like wait James Joyce wrote that a hundred years ago he wrote Ulysses um, Picasso the Cubist all that stuff was over a hundred years ago so it's like what is modern and what is uh, dated and retro, have we come to a point where we've gone back in time? We've developed uh, things technologically, but we've reversed somehow in our souls and brains. Anyway, those are just uh, existential thoughts that I had at the. They're really nothing to do with the Lyrian Corridor. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's it's it is related. I mean, and I think that the fact that you continue to to crank out this work and put it out to the world is you do believe there's there's a place for the written word and we're not necessarily in the dark ages that that often it feels like there's no, a lot of great creative work it's just not it doesn't have a big audience but no, it does right. have an audience and trying to build that audience is really um, you know important work that was one reason for delirium corridor was that I knew all these writers and all these talented people, and I thought bringing them all together could possibly have a larger reach. 
people who write different stuff. Uh, Trey Dowell writes different kind of stuff that, I mean, I can, I get what he's writing, but it's it's in a different style than me. Uh, Jesse is very science fiction. Different people in the collection have have their own pursuits and their own visions. And I thought, you know, collectively, if you think about it, most people remember the Beatles records. They don't so much want to buy Ringo's solo albums. It's like the idea of a collective. Um, I like that. I've always liked being in bands and, you know, we all have our egos and stuff, but when we can work together and showcase the best in each other, I think just everybody wins. I like the concept that Delirium Corridor is sort of a, a band of, of different visual, uh, visual literists. <laughs> so, so thank you for, for taking that leap and, of course, including one of my uh, stories. And thanks for talking with us tonight. And thank you for hosting me. Yeah, and for those of you out there, pick up a copy of Delirium Corridor from Board of Books. It's on Amazon and at the Santa Barbara Literary Journal website. And thanks to Max Talley uh, for jumping on and talking with us. Thank you to our listeners for joining us. This is Jack Ite from Wilder Utopia, coming to you from multiple undisclosed locations under a bank of coast live oaks next to a flowing stream that originates from deep underground. Find us at wilderutopia.com and we encourage everyone to get your mind out into the wild.